Hello and welcome to the Holistic Healing Project with me, Dr. Lauren MacDonald. Each week I will be sitting down with a range of experts, thought leaders and other inspiring humans to explore how we can all bring more healing into our lives. I believe we all have the capacity to self-heal, to experience more joy, greater meaning and deeper connection. I really hope these conversations inspire and support you on your own journey back to wholeness. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Holistic Healing Project. I have got a really special conversation to share with you today. Bronnie Ware is an Australian artist turned banker, turned palliative care worker, turned international best-selling author, motivational speaker and mother. You've likely already come across her through her viral blog post or maybe one of her books, including The Top 5 Regrets of the Dying, Your Year for Change and Bloom. Bronnie has a unique and beautiful way of looking at life and the wisdom that she gained from working in palliative care is something that I want everyone to hear. This is a conversation about courageously following your heart and living a life free of regrets. I really hope you enjoy it. Hi Bronnie, thank you so much for joining me today on the Holistic Healing Project. Thanks, Lauren. Hi, it's, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. So I'm sure many listeners will have come across you either through your viral blog post that, I mean, it went viral, what, about a decade now? Was it 2009? Yes, I wrote it in 2009 and it went viral towards the end of that year and into, the, into 2010. So yeah, 10 years. Yep. I mean, what an amazing 10 years off the back of that. But then you obviously wrote your international best-selling book, The Top of Five Regrets of the Dying, as well, as well as other books. But before we dive into that work, I would just love to just really get to know you a little bit better because, well, The Top Five Regrets of the Dying is a memoir. And then obviously Bloom, your other book, is obviously also a memoir. And it was just really lovely to get to know you as a person. And Really, you have been living a life, a regret-free life in some ways, um, one that just from reading about your story and where you've been and what you've done, it really feels that you've lived a courageous, bold, expansive life. I know right at the beginning, you were Bronnie who worked in banking, and now you're obviously Bronnie, the author, and you've had a career in palliative care. So I'd love to just find out a little bit more about your journey from leaving banking to becoming the person that you are today? Um, sure. Okay, thanks, Lauren. I was working in banking and I love the customer service side of it, but I was desperately unhappy because I just didn't fit into that corporate scene with high heels and makeup and stockings and, and, and mostly I just didn't want to be selling insurance products to every person who just wanted to to have their their piggy bank piggy bank emptied on the counter, and uh, and so it took a lot of soul searching, and I just kept praying for a job with heart, and that led me to becoming a companion for an elderly lady, and it turned out that she wasn't just sick; she was actually terminally ill, and so I was living with her because at the time. I was also trying to get going as a singer-songwriter and just the journey of healing and trying to find my way had led to to that form of self-expression. And, and so I took on the role as a carer, a living caregiver, just simply to be able to work in a job with heart and where I didn't have to wear that corporate uniform and somewhere just to not be paying rent. That's why I took the live-in job, so I could support my music. I had no idea that it was going to entwine with my creative journey and actually become you know, a massive part of my life's work. So for eight years, I looked after dying people. I didn't stay as a living carer. After the first person, I just realised it was just too much to live in. So I was on a house-sitting journey at the same time as, as being a caregiver. So through those eight years, I had a lot of conversations. These were people who had gone home to die and I was with them for 12-hour shifts uh, from 8 in the morning till 8 p.m. for between 3 and 12 weeks of their life, the last 3 or 12 weeks, 3 to 12 weeks of their life. And I just found recurring themes coming up around regrets and the pain that I was witnessing 
created a, a whole new unexpected journey for myself because I thought there is no way I'm going to go down this road and have those regrets myself. So I looked after dying people for eight years. Then I wanted to work where there was some hope. So I managed to set up a songwriting program in a women's jail. I'd never been inside a jail, but for some reason I was called to do that. And through a friend of one of my dying patients, I managed to secure some funding through a philanthropic organisation. I did that for a year or so, and it was such an awakening for me to realise that I had just been giving and giving and giving. And even though I went into the, the jail to give and to serve, I just received so much kindness back from my class, from my students, from the female inmates, that it triggered a massive healing in myself. It was while I was teaching in the jail that I wrote the blog about the regrets of the dying. A music magazine had asked me to write an article about the jail role. So after I wrote that one, I thought, why aren't I writing more? I love writing. I was a songwriter, but I thought I'll start a blog. And so that regrets of the dying sat there for about six or eight months And then once I finished working in the jail, I moved, I just felt myself burning out. And so I moved back to the country and I burnt out big time. And that's when I went through a huge healing crisis with depression. And just as I was coming out of that, I just basically said to life, okay, I'm bored with being sad. I've I've cried long enough. I want to get on with life. And within a week of that, the article that I had written earlier Um, earlier that year in 2009 that's when it took off when I actually consciously said to life okay I'm ready to get back into it yeah that that just led to um to being signed to an agent the book proposal was rejected by 25 publishers so I put it out myself in the meantime I was getting on with with my life I was just about I'd met a man I was just about to become a first-time mum at 45 I was really blessed to conceive naturally and quickly but during that time, I, while I was pregnant, I realised I had to leave the relationship. So all of a sudden at 45, I was, um, I was becoming a mum and in the same 24 hours as my daughter was born, I was offered an international publishing contract with uh, my dream publishing house. So that all took off at the same time and immediately following that I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. So those three things, the baby, the the publishing contract and the disease, I've never known any without the other. So my daughter's now eight and I've been on a, a really massive healing journey about self-care, self-kindness, um, boundaries and <laughs> celebrating joy on levels I never could have without the disease. Yeah, and and here I am now and uh, I've written a couple more books, but most people just want to hear about Five Regrets. And so my role is to keep that alive and um, keep being the spokesperson for that. And I'm I'm hugely grateful because I was, I am introverted, I'm, I'm very introverted. And the role of being the spokesperson for Five Regrets and for how to live a regret-free life has actually brought me many blessings and healed many layers of of the walls I had around me. So in the big picture, it's all perfect. We get what we need and uh, and I really trust in that these days. Mm, Bonnie, there's so much in there I want to kind of unpack because there's been such highs and lows and like the way you talk about the fact that within one you know 24-hour period you're getting an international book deal, publishing deal and at the same time you're becoming a mom for the first time at 45 and then you're being diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis I mean that in itself is huge Um, and then on on the background of having obviously worked in palliative care which you know anyone who works in palliative care I just have so much respect for because it cannot be an easy job and it's such a needed role but I'm not surprised to hear that you know you burn out and that you give and give and give because yeah it's just it's just such a open heartfelt giving role isn't it to be to be with somebody as they pass so yeah I would love to dive into all of that if that's okay um but as you mentioned the thing that everyone does want to speak to you first about is is often the top five regrets of the dying and I think that's just because the article that you wrote is so powerful and poignant and it really hits home because dying is still not really talked about that much. It's one of those things that we all know, you know, it's coming to all of us. And yet we live in a state of denial, a lot of us, and think, you know, it will happen to someone else, but not to me. So I think just having this this article saying, you know, not only 
yes, we're all going to die. But also, if you're not wary, if you're not conscious, you could get to the end of your life and have these regrets, which are quite tragic, really, when you when you read through them. Um, so I think it just really, it's it just hit everybody, didn't it? It just, I know it kind of took off at such a speed. <laughs> no, it definitely hasn't. <laughs> but when I was taking off, yeah, it was just like, okay, I'm ready. Let's go. Let's see where this takes us. So... It's such needed, powerful work. So I'd love to dive into those regrets, if that's okay, just to begin with. Sure. So my own experience with, I don't really think I would call it a regret. The only way I can slightly put myself in the place of these these patients that you spoke with at the end of their life was the night that I found out I had malignant melanoma. I had made the huge mistake of actually looking up my own biopsy results at work which is just you know no one should ever ever do but I was so sure that it was going to be fine that I thought I'll just you know I I was writing up another patient's discharge summary and I just thought I'll have a quick look just to put my mind at rest and then read I had cancer on the screen and yet I couldn't get hold of my oncologist I couldn't get hold of a dermatologist so I went home that night knowing I had cancer but I had no idea how extensive it was and obviously your mind goes to the worst case scenario so I lay awake all night thinking I'm riddled with tumors and I'm going to die and I just I just remember I mentioned it in the first episode where I kind of went through my journey but the two big thought kind of processes that came up were the question have I loved enough and have I let myself be loved and also has the world been a better place for simply me having been alive like have I given enough and have I been of service and when I was reading through these regrets there's definitely elements of that kind of peppered in between them so I'd love to just dive into the first one which is regret number one um, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself not the life other people expect of me And in the book, you talk about a patient, Grace, who stays in an unhappy marriage, waiting to really start living. And I just think that must be the case for so many people that we we just find ourselves living a life that maybe we didn't choose or we haven't directed our ship that direction. And is that the case? Was that the regret that came up the most? Yes, it was. Yeah, it was it was definitely the most most common one. And Grace was the first person that shared it with me. She was quite early on in my my caring career. There was so much pain and anguish wrapped around that for her that it, it opened my eyes to regret straight away and uh, and had a life-changing effect. The thing is there are elements of all of our lives that we would like to change. That's part of our ongoing evolution in, in trying to improve our lives. And just because we don't get to see every single dream unfold doesn't mean we're going to regret, have that regret that we, we haven't lived true to our hearts. The main thing is that, that we at least have a go. That way, if we're pursuing our dreams and we're finding the courage to honour the life that our own individual heart is calling us to, then if we are taken from life suddenly or we have the chance for reflection and um, are diagnosed with, with disease, then at least we know that we gave it a go. And, and so even if it hasn't unfolded exactly the way we thought, we still are going to be free of that regret and thinking, oh, my goodness, I wish... I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life other people live. But so much of the way our society operates is about keeping up appearances and being concerned by how we'll be perceived by others. And that doesn't actually benefit anybody because we all have individual talents and strengths and we're not actually meant to fit the same mould. And yet we have this culture of believing that success is looks like this particular way when success and living a good life looks different for every single person. I love that the book, although it is a, it's really these regrets that people have, but it's also a a manual or an invitation for people to be more courageous and really step forward and, and not to have these regrets at the end. And I think so often that I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself comes up. And like you said, it's societal pressures or pressures from parents or whatever it is. And 
before we know it, we're waking up 20 years down the line and just thinking, how do we get here? You know, I'm on the wrong path. So how do you recommend that people start if they realize that they hang on, you know, this doesn't feel aligned. I'm not happy where I am. How can we start to be more courageous in everyday life? Well, firstly, by facing the fact that we're going to die, that you're going to die, I'm going to die. And the more we can use death as a tool for living by not denying its existence because it's coming for all of us, but actually saying, okay, I am going to die one day. So that means that the time I have now is ever decreasing. But rather than it be all doom and gloom, think, okay, that time is decreasing. I need to get on with this. I need to have the courage to get on with this now because I don't want to be on my deathbed with regrets. I don't even want to wake up in another 10 years and think, oh, my goodness, I'm still in the same position. I haven't made any changes in my life just because I think I've got forever to do it. So by facing the fact that you're going to die, you realise just what a gift time is and what a precious resource it is. And that can be a fabulous um, wake-up call to get the courage <laughs> the courage muscle going and then once that happens you think okay I need to make some changes then it is just a one step at a time process we can hinder ourselves so much by not even beginning just because you're trying to work out every single step of the way and even the most well-planned project or, or dreams never turns out exactly the way we think and it turns out even better for our our soul's happiness but it rarely goes in a linear way and there's always surprises along the way to say hang on you're heading in the wrong direction here life's going to just say no I'm going to close the door here and make you look in a different direction so it doesn't matter how much you try and orchestrate the way you want things to unfold there are always surprises but a lot of those surprises if you dare to just live step by step and trust in life surrender to to life and and know that it's actually on your side a lot of those surprises are, are brilliant wonderful surprises they can give you shortcuts so you can plan something and you might think oh okay that's going to take 20 steps to get from where i am now to the life i imagine myself these are the 20 steps i'm going to take Whereas if you just deal with the first one or two steps and think, okay, I'm dealing with this step now, I'm going to be as fully present as I can be and then I'm going to take the next step as it reveals itself. I sort of think this is what the next step will be but I'll know fully when I'm finished with this first step. Then you might get to about the fourth or fifth step and all of a sudden life says, well done, I'm going to reward your courage, meet this person here and there's a shortcut that takes you from step five to step nine. So let's don't worry about those other four or five steps. You don't have to do that all on your own. I'm on your side. Just get out of the way and let me help you. Yeah. And I love in the book, you describe how when you were making one of your albums, you were almost at the point of giving up, but you had just had faith that somehow the money was going to come and you had all the musicians ready to go and you'd book the studio. And lo and behold, you go out and you meet somebody and she offers to fund the album. And I guess that's a perfect example of just taking the steps and having faith. And then hopefully the universe will deliver um, when you when you get to that point of surrender, really, isn't it? A lot of your works are yes. around surrender. Yes, it is. And I mean, that was a Friday night. I sat on my meditation cushion and I was crying and I said, I am so scared. I don't know what I'm going to do here. I am so scared. And that Friday, and, and I changed my plans. I wasn't in the mood to go and do what I was going to do. Went out somewhere else, met this great woman. She turned up on the Monday morning with the money for the album and said, no, just just do it. I've always wanted to support the arts, just just like that. But sometimes we have to reach that breaking point of surrender where we let go of the control and say, I have done everything I can to make this happen. I've followed my heart. I've had the courage to follow my heart and honour it. But now I've reached a place where I am really scared. I don't know what to do. I've done everything I can. There's nothing more I can do. And then it's like life just breathes a sigh of relief and says, oh, thank goodness, now I can help you. And also sometimes I imagine maybe that doesn't happen You're and you're rerouted yet again, but just trusting that that's okay, that that other path wasn't meant for you 
maybe not ever or at least not in this particular moment but that you are being rerouted and kind of it will work out hopefully at the end it yeah it does work out in the end we I, I really believe that there is not one experience in our life that, that is incidental or wasted I, I think that it all leads to what is best for our individual heart and which equals our individual joy Mm, I love that. Thank you. So regret number two is I wish I hadn't worked so hard, which I'm sure lots of people can resonate with because we just live in a culture, don't we, where work, we work so hard, we play so hard as well, but there's just not that much balance. And could you just speak a little bit more about that? Sure. It's it's not about not loving your work. I'm really passionate when I'm involved in a project, but the regret that kept coming up for people was that they had made work their whole identity and they hadn't actually given enough time to other areas of their life. And when work was taken away from them, they didn't even know who they were and hadn't nurtured the family relationships or friendships or um, followed their their joy to do hobbies and activities. It had all been about work being the identity. And so it's not about not giving yourself in a really full and passionate way to what you're called to do, but it's about saying, okay, I'm actually going to allocate time to other areas of my life as well. And that was that was a really common regret where people were just saying, oh, I just made work, everything, and now what? I've got nothing. I'm, I'm here and I've got nothing, no memories other than work. And often, as was the case, that once work fell away, so did a lot of the workmates fall away. And so there were people I cared for who had had family there but hardly any relationship with the family because they'd been workaholics and didn't even know how to start those relationships and were too sick and tired to do so in the end anyway. And then I think it's Pearl, isn't it, in the book, who you describe that she also talks about purpose so it doesn't always have to be that work and your purpose and your calling are the same thing could you just explain a little bit more about what you mean by that the idea of everybody having a purpose so what Pearl taught me was exactly that that we all have a purpose but we can often stay in the wrong jobs just for fear of money but if we're courageous enough to honor the calling of uh, to actually find our purpose and Um, which is really just the call of your heart and start thinking, no, this job's not making me happy. I need to find something where I can feel such a great sense of contribution. The field I'm going to doesn't really earn me, earn as much money as what I'm earning now. And, but I'm going to give it a go anyway. An example, you know, I, um, you might be a really great gardener and your dream might be to, uh, start a, a herb nursery or something like that but you think oh to do that I'm going to lose a lot of money from what I'm getting now as an office manager but what Pearl was saying is once you actually go into your purpose and have the courage to honor your purpose then again life just supports you and finds ways and she actually ended up earning way more money than what she had in other roles because she just didn't make money the priority and we all have to live we all have our responsibilities we don't want to live in absolute fear the whole time about money but money is also an energy that we can block through fearing we're not going to have enough of that and so it's more about if you're not going to have the regret of working too hard because hers was was in that within that same regret it's more about just know that at least you're having a go to honor what lights you up because then you're not going to regret working too hard you're going to think I'm here to serve I'm honoring my purpose and that gives a sense of satisfaction and contribution that just working and slaving away in a job you hate will never give and I know you also tie in with that the idea that actually if you're a mother and you might not be working in a traditional sense, you know, a nine to five job, but actually you are working and that is your purpose. And the fact that you are raising healthy, incredible children, that's actually your purpose in, the, in that situation as well, which I think is a really important thing to highlight because a lot of women are not recognized that they are actually doing an amazing job and that is their purpose. Yes, yeah, and not only will they raise children who come out 
um, feeling loved because they've had their mother's time and attention, the children don't necessarily have to go out there and become a brain surgeon. You know, I mean, there are mothers who are helping their kids do that sort of thing. But even if you just raise a child who becomes an adult who's grounded and a good person, that's that's such a massive success, not only in a, a family way, but on a society level, because that person is going to contribute in a really positive way to society and not pull, drag society back because they've been loved and nurtured and then they'll actually have the courage to go in and bring positivity into the world themselves. So that ripple effect from someone who's a completely devoted mother just goes on and on. Well, it goes on and on for forever, for generations, because that child has grown up loved instead of that child has grown up having to undo all these family patterns of not feeling nurtured and not feeling supported because their mother was was just slaving away and not giving them any attention. It's a tricky situation. I'm, I'm a working mum. I give my daughter as much attention as I can. I'm a solo parent as well. And, yeah, it is a tricky thing. And a lot of women want to express themselves in ways outside of motherhood and it's finding what lights you up. It's finding that balance. There's no right or wrong, but I agree with you, Lauren, that a lot of women who are at home as mums certainly need a lot more recognition for the amazing job they're doing, not only for their children, but for society as well. Like you said, it's not an easy job. Yeah, just all these hardworking mums just need some more recognition. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. So regret number three is I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. And when I was reading that, what came up for me was the work of Brenny Brown on vulnerability. And this idea that we really, so many of us hold back from really showing our true selves and being vulnerable and what it takes is courage to step out. And yet we struggle. Why do you think that's the case? Why, why are so many of us holding back? Well, the judgment around being weak isn't something that anyone really wants to own. But vulnerability is a strength, not a weakness. And the patients who I looked after who didn't have that courage to express themselves had massive regret around it because they felt their family didn't even know them in some cases. And that's that's pretty hard coming from a man in his 90s who has never actually had a, a completely honest conversation with his family. It's just heartbreaking, but we're so distorted as a society and thankfully it is changing. We're, we're in a time where we're being forced to change because the old ways are not working. But in the old ways, it's all about that glorifying busyness and having success look a certain way. And so being vulnerable and and uh, not being strong all the time has been seen as a weakness, but it just ends up eating away inside and, and causing disease. And it also causes regrets because when you have the courage to actually express your feelings in a very, very honest way, with a loving heart, you know, with as much love in your heart as possible, it is so incredibly freeing. It's only then that you realise how much weight holding your feelings in actually is to carry. Yeah, and also when you open up, you start to build communication channels and connection and actually grow your community. And so often we hold back because we're worried we're going to be judged, but actually the very thing we all crave, which is kind of community and connection, it's we're actually pushing that away, aren't we? Yes, and we cannot underestimate the power of community and connection. They're, they're not just a luxury, they're actually essential for our well-being and our joy and our survival. And that one really ties in with regret number four, so I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. So why in a world where we're so connected through social media and obviously the internet, and I appreciate you wrote the viral blog post, you know, a decade ago now, but I'm guessing that would still be the case, that would still come up today and that many people kind of lose touch with their friends in later life. Why do you think that's the case and what can we do about that? Well, I think it's just getting caught up in everyday life and not prioritising friendships. But when people were dying, they wanted to reminisce about their life and they wanted to do so with friends that could bring joy to their heart. And it was before social media when I wrote this blog and wrote the book, but it's just a different angle now. So 
you may not lose touch as such with your friends because you might be friends on Facebook or you can look them up on Instagram or whatever form of social media. You can still stay connected through that, but nothing will ever replace the joy of real life connection. Also, so many of us work from home and it's really easy just to sort of send a quick message or send a text message or anything through through the technical world. It's still better than nothing, absolutely, but nothing is nothing even comes close to the power of real life connection and seeing a friend in in person. So by getting off social media a little bit and looking at the old ways of living, that is one area that actually we we've had a big downfall in in the sense that we can reach all our friends but really we're also busy because of social media i, I know because i take sabbaticals from social media regularly and whenever i do and i'm not compulsive on social media but even when i take time off so, social media i have so much more time and so if we can prioritize real life friendships over um, friendships just through social media, then our hearts are just going to be so much more happy and complete. Yeah, I completely agree. And I'm having to really work at that at the moment. Obviously, I'm away in Australia, not too far from you, actually, at the moment. And, you know, most of my friends are back home in the UK. And it is, I really have to set aside time to get in touch with them. And it is obviously using, um, you know, the various social media channels or WhatsApp, Facebook. But it's just putting aside the time to really connect with people because, you know, you you come off a call or you come off having received a message from them and there's nothing like it really, just having that deep connection with your friends and really maintaining those friendships. But it does require effort and I can see how, you know, you can let these relationships slide, especially when you start kind of geographically being separate as well. So, yeah, no, that's a really, really interesting and important regret that I'm trying hard not to have myself. So regret number five is I wish I'd let myself be happier. And when I read this one, I just feel, oh, I just feel really sad for people who get to the end of their life and have that that heaviness, that regret that they didn't truly let themselves be happy. And how often did you see that? Was that one that came up a lot? Oh, yes. And I mean, it's still coming up for people every day. You can see the sadness in society and how few people actually walk around with a light spirit and uh, and a smile for a stranger. But yes, it, amongst my patients, it came up all the time. And people just realizing that they had let their self-worth be defined by the opinions of others and owning that um, that lack of worth and then actually spending their life paying a penance for some mistake they've made that their family or society has judged them on rather than saying, okay, I was human, I made a mistake, we all make mistakes, I'm going to just forgive myself and choose a happier way of life now instead of carrying the weight of this mistake on my back for the rest of my life. It was absolutely heartbreaking, Lauren, to to see this realisation unfold in people when they realise that happiness is actually a choice and not just something you fluke sometimes. And, uh, and it doesn't mean there's not challenges and it doesn't mean there's not hard times, sadness, grief, anger, everything else. They have their role as well. But there is a choice in what you choose to focus on on a daily basis or on a moment-to-moment basis. So you can still be in amongst a massive challenge and having a really hard time, but then you might just stop for a moment and have a moment of mindfulness and spot a bird sitting in a tree or hear a bird singing in a tree. And just for that moment, you're focused on the song of the bird or the colours of the bird or something, just for example. And when that bird flies off or whatever, the problem is still there, but your your spirit is a tiny bit lighter for having taken time out of that challenge for the last few minute or two. And that is how choosing happiness can come about. So it isn't, like I say, it's not denying the hard times and the other growth that we all have to go through, but it is saying, okay, I've got this going on, but I'm going to choose my perspective on, on how to approach this. I can trust in this lesson and somehow find a blessing within it. And in the meantime, I can just try and be present and be grateful for all the other things going on in my life, or I can let it completely swallow me up and 
end up staying with me for so long it actually creates a new identity of misery and a lack of joy. It's not the denying of the challenges. You know, life can be so challenging. And for some people more than others, it's just finding those moments of lightness and happiness within within it all, within the mess that is life. And I know you're, you're a Vedic meditator, is that correct? Yes, yes, I am. And it sounds like you have a very kind of mindful way of living. And do you think that helped you when you were doing this work? Because it must have been really challenging for you just on a very emotional level. Yes. Oh, thank thank goodness for meditation during that time. Um, just through my whole life, actually, <laughs> every single day. Thank goodness for meditation. Um, yes, when I was working as the carer I was, it was a different time as well. So I finished in 2009 at the very beginning of 2009. And since then, just in the industry, there's a lot more support now and more acknowledgement and recognition around the needs of caregivers. And But in my time, in those eight years, never once did the agency I was working with say, do you want some emotional support or do you need, are you, are you going okay? How are you traveling? It was all about is your back okay? Don't lift anyone, you know, all the physical stuff. Make sure you use the hoist. Don't use your back, da-da-da. And I'd like to think that it, that it is evolving more and more so that as carers are burning out, the signs are recognised a little bit faster. But I would not have survived at all during that time or any time since without meditation being a daily practice. And um, I'm just so grateful that life called me to that early on. It's probably been about 30 years now that I've been a meditator. So, yeah, it's certainly carried me through some pretty big waves, yeah. <laughs> mm, I trained in Vedic meditation a few years ago now. Similar, you know, I was going through a really challenging time and, yeah, it just is that grounding and bringing me back to myself that, you know, as soon as I don't do it for a few days, I really feel it in myself. Um, it definitely can really help when you're going through challenging times, but also, as you talk about, you know, just coming back to be with yourself and really checking in and seeing if you're aligned, see if, seeing if you're on the right path and then, you know, potentially making some other decisions if your life's not going really in the direction that your heart's calling you. Oh. So, yeah. So you, you worked in palliative care for eight years and then you finished working there and then you shifted work to, well, the universe helped you shift into becoming an author. And obviously on the way through this journey, you um, became a mother and then you developed rheumatoid arthritis. And I, as I understand, that was a really, really challenging time. You were in a lot of pain, a lot of disability. How was that period of your life? Oh, it was a blur. <laughs> it was it was complete survival mode. That was all. I had the baby. I was a solo parent by then. Yeah, I had the baby. I had massive success going on with the book, which meant interviews back to back, even through the night in different time zones and things like that. And I couldn't even, I couldn't even dress myself some days. And I remember when I was only Eleanor, my daughter was only about a year and a half, and I I'd sat down to to feed her. She was probably a tiny bit younger actually to breastfeed her, and I couldn't get up off the chair. I was sitting there thinking. I'm like, how am I going to do this? And actually said out loud that, that question, like, how am I going to get up from this chair? She came into me and tried to pull me up and it just broke my heart. I'll never forget it because here's this dear little girl who I'm supposed to be looking after and she's trying to pull me up from the chair. So I said, no, honey, I'll, I'll work it out. And I, and I did. I, I had to get myself up through the pain regardless. And I don't know how I survived it, Lauren. Like I, I don't know how I survived it. I, I just did. I just went into survival mode and I got on with it. And I learned to say I need help, and I learned to accept any off any glimpses of help at all. And what I've come to realise now, I, I have an amazing support system around me now, and uh, eight eight years on. But um, what I came to realise was that. Having a personal support system actually supports me professionally much more. So I have a very, I have a small professional support system and a large personal support system now. Whereas there was a time I had a larger professional system and then hardly any personal support. And I was drowning. I was just in so much pain. And Eleanor at two years old was helping me get dressed and things like that. And 
But over time, I've realized that actually having a personal support system that eases my load, that helps my, not only my professional life, but it helps all, every part of my life. So it's been a heck of a journey and I've done some amazing learning through it. But I do believe that having the disease has been one of my greatest teachers in terms of boundaries and self-care and realising that we all have limits because it's very easy to, when you're feeling well, to think you can just keep going and keep going with no price to pay for that. But everyone, everything has a price. And, uh, yeah, so I'm actually in a in a really great place with it now and I, I still have RA, I still live with it, but I ride my push bike, I swim six mornings a week, I, I know my limits and I honour them. I, like there's, they're non-negotiable these days and it's only through having such a severe experience of pain for, for so long that, um, that I, it's a way of life now to honour my limits because I know the price I pay if I don't. So I'm, I'm really grateful for the journey as hard as it's been. It's so interesting because I speak to so many people who have had, you know, various illnesses or life experiences and so many, I mean, not everybody, but I'm sure you have had the same experience when you speak to people who are going through challenging times. But so often there comes to be an appreciation for the experience because it's almost a cracking open and you're, you cannot live life as you lived it before because you have all this new wisdom and understanding. But do you think that we we all need that darkness, that kind of dark night of the soul to really appreciate the light and, and get to that wisdom? Or can, can other people, is there other ways to access it? I think theoretically we don't need it. I, I think that life's actually quite simple and straightforward in terms of let it flow, trust in it, learn from nature the way that nature does and life will support you. It, you know, that's life in a nutshell in a way. But we have so many belief systems that are handed down through generations from all of our ancestors, so much healing to do that there's, uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't know anyone who I would call a wise person who hasn't been cracked open. So I believe we come in as wise people. I Certainly my daughter, who's, who's now eight, is, is one of the wisest people I know and she hasn't been cracked open yet in such a way. But, I, yeah, I think theoretically we don't need it, but honestly, yes, yes, I'm, I'm yet to meet anyone who is reaching their fullest potential without being cracked open. And, uh, and so the more I see that and the more I consider that, the more I believe that life gives us our lessons from a place of absolute love and kindness, even though they're, they do shatter us, shatter us completely and crack us open. I do believe that those that all of our lessons are given to us from a place of love to bring us into our best self, our best version of ourselves, so that we can help to heal the planet and help to contribute in the most courageous way because otherwise we just will never realise our potential. Yeah, I mean, you, you talk about it in Bloom as well, about breaking through your upper limits and really pushing beyond the kind of cage and stepping into your true self, which is much easier said than done. And I guess sometimes you do need that absolute shattering to help you kind of put yourself back together and have a clearer vision. But just going back to the regrets for a moment, Anyone listening who has is maybe carrying some regrets at the moment, you know, they're not on the deathbed, they're not dying, and yet there's a heaviness to them. That how do we live with these regrets that maybe we're carrying? What do you think? Is it is it just self-forgiveness and self-compassion? How can we carry on moving forward and just live a fuller, more expansive life, you know, yet, you know, with these regrets? Well, we understand that making mistakes is a part of being human and it is about that self-forgiveness and self-compassion because all of us make mistakes. That's how we learn. We might make great successes and think, oh, yeah, I'll do that again, but we learn a lot faster through mistakes and we learn in a much more powerful way through mistakes. So if you can look back at a mistake with regret, then you, you've already evolved from the person who made that mistake. Otherwise, you wouldn't recognise it as a mistake. So you look back and think, okay, if I could go back and do this again, I wouldn't do it that way. I've learnt from it. 
But that's who I was on that day in that moment. Even within a chapter of our lives, there's so many fluctuations in our energy levels, in our moods, in our capabilities, in our restraint. <laughs> um, so we all have mistakes that, that things we would do differently if we had our time again. But we can either make them, just let them be a mistake and learn from them uh, and th even thank the mistake, have compassion for our old, the old part of ourself and think, okay, you did your best as who you are in that moment. Or you can continue to judge yourself on and on and on and carry the weight of that when the only difference here is your perspective of the mistake. You either have sentenced yourself to, to a lifelong lifetime of penance or years of penance for this mistake you've made and you keep carrying it and just won't actually forgive yourself and give yourself some loving compassion and say, you messed up, you sure did. You messed up. Okay, own that. You messed up, but you've paid your penance and you don't actually have to keep punishing yourself about this. Let it go. Love that broken part of yourself that made those mistakes. That's what they were. They were broken. You're still a little bit broken. You'll make more mistakes, but just bring as much kindness and compassion and forgiveness and love into it from yourself and say, yeah, I've done my time. I'm actually going to forgive myself now. I'm going to let that go, learn from it, and move forward with a lot more gentleness and love in my heart. And then when I make another mistake, I'm going to see it as just that, a mistake. I'm not going to carry the weight of regret with it. So I know you now work in the sphere of helping people to live regret-free lives and to really help people move towards joy. So is that that must be a part of your work then, really. It's not that we're going to be able to live our lives you know regret free as such because it's inevitable that we will make mistakes but it's finding peace with that is that the kind of way you where you work well yeah but also regrets are only our judgment on on the mistake so we can actually be regret free like i'm i'm regret free completely because i've forgiven myself i'm not mistake free but i'm regret free because i have forgiven myself and There'll always be something we could stick into the category of regrets, but the more we can not identify it as that and not judge ourselves so harshly as to carry the weight of that mistake and transform it into a regret because all regrets are mistakes, but not all mistakes are regrets. So we're always going to make mistakes, but if we don't want that mistake to become a regret, that's our choice. That's just how we're identifying with that mistake. So, yeah, part of choosing a regret-free life means forgiving yourself, knowing that you're going to make mistakes, but not being so harsh on yourself because you've made mistakes and just say, okay, I've done this. I wish I hadn't done it. I'm going to forgive myself and I'm going to choose to have a lighter heart and move forward instead because the weight of those regrets are robbing you of joy and the time is an ever-decreasing resource. Your life is getting closer and closer to the end every single moment. Rather than seeing that as a terrifying thing, use it in a positive way and think, okay, I don't have all the time in the world here and I've made mistakes but I'm not going to carry this and ruin the rest of my life by not allowing myself to have an increased experience of joy as well simply because I want to keep judging myself and carrying this burden of regret. Let it go. Just let it go and forgive yourself. That's such great advice. And I think we're all so judgmental, aren't we? It's just our go-to response so often to judge mistakes. But like you said, it is always a choice and you can actually almost turn that mistake into it's something that you can find peace with and move beyond, which is really, really important. We've covered a lot of ground here and, you know, we've dived into the regrets of the dying, but also your own journey and really your own healing journey over the years. But for anyone listening, is there a particular message you'd like to share with them? Is there anything we haven't covered that you would like to share? Well, just that I do believe our lessons are given to us from a place of love and that if we dare to actually look at our resistance with honesty and break through that resistance then life will support you. Life is on our side. So rather than think about how much you need to know for every step along the way, maybe just get out of your own way sometimes and let yourself be surprised. 
Mm, lovely. That's great. Thank you. And just finally, I also ask all of my guests, what does holistic healing mean to you? It means being present for your life, regardless of the circumstances. So to encompass loving yourself on all levels. So not just the medicinal side of it, but to heal holistically means to allow more joy in, to forgive yourself, to set healthy boundaries, to hear the songs that birds are singing and to be as present for your life as possible because that takes off that takes a lot of pressure not only off off your soul but off your body as well if you can allow more and more joy in and let the body connect with its own wisdom beautiful Bonnie thank you so much just such great advice for anyone listening to really and just an invitation to yeah just be be here be here now and know that we haven't all got forever and you know this is this is it so we we all have the option to just step forward and live a life with more joy and happiness so yeah thank you so much for sharing for anyone who wants to find you connect with you where where do people head um bronnyware.com it's where as in w-a-r-e bronnyware.com is like my mothership in the world of technology i'm also on uh, facebook and instagram as bronnie.ware and you can find me there i'm I'm there regularly enough unless i'm on a sabbatical oh wonderful thank you so much it has been so lovely to chat with you and with you lauren thank you so much for the work you're doing as well thank you for your contribution to the planet thank you For those of you who'd like to take a deeper dive into your healing and transformation, I would love to invite you to join me on retreat in Bali this April. The Reconnection Retreat is being held in Ubud between the 18th and the 24th of April and we still have a few spaces left. So if you're feeling a bit stuck, maybe going through a life transition or maybe you just want to reconnect with your true essence and come back alive, then this retreat might be exactly what you're looking for. The reconnection is a journey from disconnected to reconnected, nourished and aligned. Through yoga, meditation, breathwork, movement and other unique workshops, trips and ceremonies, we help guide you back to yourself. After all, the relationship with yourself is the most important one you will ever have. So many of us are disconnected and we just need that time and space to find ourselves, really tap into what's true for us. And then we can go back out into the world and shine our truest expression. So if you're interested, please get in touch. You can head on over to my website at drlaurenmcdonald.com forward slash retreat for all the retreat details. And otherwise, just send me a message either via Instagram or an email and I can get back to you. I really hope you can join us in Bali in April. Please remember that whilst I am a qualified medical doctor, I am not your medical doctor. So whilst we often talk about health and well-being and we give out tools and tips and sometimes discuss topics that are a little bit fringe or alternative, this is very much for information only. It is not individual medical advice. So please, if you have any health concerns, make sure you go and see your own practitioner.